Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a death toll in Hamilton for the COVID crisis has risen to 19. Two additional deaths connected with that just the other day. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson will join us to talk about that. We'll have our weekly discussion about employment problems during the COVID-19 pandemic. Andrew Goldberg will give us some advice. And how are the Canadian and U.S. governments handling COVID? Very different stories on both sides of the border. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to get an update on what is happening in our community, especially going forward. You may recall a couple of days ago we had the mayor on the program talking about next steps. And uh, when they have their council meeting today, uh, he's going to ask for a motion to be passed that's actually going to give him permission to start a task force, uh, get input into the community as to how we should go out of this thing. Is it lifting restrictions at once? Is it is it a phased-in approach, uh, not unlike what the premier talked about? And what are the implications? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson. Dr. Richardson, of course, is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us again today. Are we there, Doctor? I'm here. Ah, there we go. Okay, fine. There we go. Making sure we got all the buttons pushed and all the levers and everything else. Okay, we're good to go here. I want to ask you the same question I asked Mayor Eisenberger a couple of days ago, and I need always like to get your perspective on this. You've you've heard the buzz in a lot of places, including Southern Ontario here, that it's time to ease these restrictions. It's time for us to to start going back outside, maybe even start going to some of these establishments that we haven't been allowed to go to in the last little while. Uh, and I understand that. I mean, cabin fever is, is running rampant around here. I get that totally. But by the same token, we keep getting messages from people in the medical profession that if we do that, uh, we're probably asking for another spike. I don't know how big it's going to be, but I, uh, and we're not even sure if we can handle that. What, what's your read as to how this is going to go and what it might cause? Well, that's, you know... Both of those things are, are totally understandable, both in terms of those who are ready to, to roll and get back to things and people who very much are, are struggling because of uh, their businesses having been impacted by it, their families having been impacted by it. So, um, you know, wanting to get going and, of course, the, the better weather, although we can't necessarily say that today, um, you know, has us wanting to get back outside and get back at things as well. Um, but at the same time, there's significant concerns in terms of opening back up quite yet. And so, you know, we're, we're very mindful within public health and the health system that, that what is going on in relation to COVID-19, we're trying to protect people um, from becoming severely ill and from dying from this disease. And at the same time, we know that the control measures that are in place, they have their impacts too. They have impacts mm-hmm. on people's ability to work. They have impacts on, uh, on our kids being at school. They have impacts on people's mental health. And so, you know, we're trying to do a, a balanced approach in terms of the approach to this virus overall. But, you know, realistically, we're not quite there yet. Um, everybody is very much planning in advance. You know, many of us have been through several emergencies before. So we know we need to think about how, what we do next just as much as what we think about what we're just as much as we think about what we're doing now. Let me get that out uh, properly. Um, and so there's definitely things like the the plan that you saw from the premier about how do we move forward. And I hope that gives people some hope and gives them a framework in which to start thinking about these things. And so, you know, the principles that they outlined the need to be responsible and uh, to make sure we continue to protect those who are most vulnerable and high risk, to make sure it's based on evidence, to make sure we have our resources um, in hand, like masks and all the things that we need to have to 
to uh, do good infection control to make sure that it's clear. And so a lot of what you're going to see that's developed over the coming weeks is guidance for workplaces because the reality is that we're going to be in this for the next 18 months to two years if we get a vaccine developed in that time and maybe longer if, if not. And so the backbone of all of this is going to continue to be really good infection control practices. So the coughing into your sleeve, the physical distancing, the washing your hands, um, you know, not going to work at all if you're sick, not going out at all if you're at all sick, um, and staying home and truly self-isolating if you have COVID-19. They're going to continue to be the backbone for uh, for reopening the economy. And so there's going to be a lot of work done on developing guidance for workplaces so they can do that safely. You know, what do they need to do so that people have what they, they need to do? And then we're going to need to continue to look at, at at how much spread there is, whether or not we're continuing to contain it, uh, whether our health system has capacity. And we know, too, on that front, there's a lot of people who've been waiting for health procedures that were elective, as we call them, i.e. they could wait, they weren't urgent, um, that need to go on as well, and uh, that there's good capacity in the public health system to do the contact tracing and case management, as well as outbreak management, that will be the, the backbone of it as well. So we're still having, you know, 500-ish cases in Ontario every day, um, you know, we're still having outbreaks in long-term care facilities and, and community congregate settings. And so we're not there yet. Um, and we know this is the stage that we need to go through, but hopefully we will be getting to the point soon. And in the meantime, we're preparing so that uh, people can uh, be well prepared and, and do the things they need to do to get open as quickly as possible when we can do that. A lot of stuff to go through here. I, I want to try to get as much of it in, in, in as we can here. Uh, because the, the the this next phase that we've been waiting for for months now that they're starting to talk about uh, has been on our minds. But we, we we were told right from the get go from people like yourself and 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 Dr. Tan and so many others uh, that okay there are certain criteria that have to be met. And one of the basic ones I think, Doctor, was uh, 14 days with no new cases would give us some assurance that we're we're on the right track. But we're not there. We're not even close to that. Yet there are politicians that want to move forward. Are you uncomfortable about that? Well, I think that the 14 days with no new cases, I th- that's, that's the ideal to tell us that spread has stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're going to get to that point. And certainly when you hear from uh, David Williams, our Chief Medical Officer of Health, you know, in terms of what he's asking for, he's saying we need to get our, the number of new cases down um, and, then we, and we need to see it continuing to decrease. And so not waiting for there to be none, not waiting for there to be zero, but certainly a you know, two to four week consistent decrease in the number of new daily cases and that to continue once the new measures, as we go through the, the stages and phases that they've proposed, that that continues. If we start to see cases go back up, that tells us it's not working, that we're getting more spread again. And so we need to, to make sure we continue to see that decline. But does it stand to reason then, because we all want to see that decline. We don't just want to see it flattening the curve. We want to see that curve start to disappear. Uh, that's the ultimate goal. And I'm not even, we're not going to try to pin you down as to when that might happen. I mean, I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> but the fact that we're going to allow people out to congregate, uh, not just in, in parks or whatever, but I mean, they're going to be enclosed in spaces and they're not supposed to be, but you know that's going to happen. Does it stand a reason that as soon as that starts happening and people are out there and exposed and, and interacting with each other that there will be a spike? Well, that's the question, right, is is will there be a spike? It's certainly going to create conditions where there could be a spike, and that's why we have to do it very carefully. And that's why the backbone of this 
is is those things I mentioned off the top about good hand washing, not going out if you're sick, um, maintaining the physical distancing. You know, so it does require significant adjustment in workplaces. It's not going back to the way that things were before the beginning of uh, of February. It is um, continuing to do the practices. So innovation is going to be really key for our business community, for everybody in terms of, of how we go forward. How can we do things differently? How do we, you know, manage to support people well so that they can stay home if they're sick? How do we continue to work it from home as much as possible? How do we, you know, organize things in stores or in business, in workplaces so that people can stay physically distanced? So that's where a lot of the guidance documents need to come first. Um, so that people can have, businesses can have in hand the kinds of things they need to do in order to do this safely to ensure that transmission doesn't increase and then we can have both. We can have, you know, no to low transmission and we can have, you know, workplaces and uh, businesses that are up and running. There's a lot going on here and I know a lot of the people are getting a little antsy because they're saying, well, look, that's not what they said in February, March. And and, and, you know, so these guys were wrong all along, and it's, that's not the case at all. We're learning more about the virus on a daily basis. We, I think a lot of us tend to forget that we've only been dealing with this thing for about four months now. This is not something that's been around for a long, long time, for years and years and years. So we are learning about that. Uh, I'm even hearing stories now that the incubation period probably should be 21 days, not 14 days, of course, has been proved. Uh, those that were saying, okay, we can start allowing people to go out into, into the public in, in limited areas, uh, because they were counting on, as, as something we've talked about, herd immunity. That is, people that have had the virus develop antibodies, and that helps. But now we're told there's no guarantee that's even happening. We don't know that yet. So there's a lot of question marks out there to the to this point, and which is why it's very, very difficult, I would think, Doctor, for people like yourself to give a definitive answer on any of these questions. That's right. I mean, that's the nature of science in general, right, and why people sometimes get very frustrated with us no matter what disease we're talking about, but particularly in a case like this where we're learning new things every day as we go forward. And, you know, there's some assumptions you make based on how viruses normally function, and then you find out whether or not this function, this virus functions in that way and get more specifics about it. So I can absolutely appreciate for people it's frustrating both because of the level of uncertainty, and so, you know, that is just difficult to handle, and you're always looking for the best answer, but then the answers aren't clear and are evolving on a regular basis. So it is the, the nature of the beast, if you will, um, as we go forward. The, the good news is that the global cooperation on this uh, and trying to find answers is great um, because we are a little bit behind most of the rest of the world. A lot of people are trying things and seeing what works and sharing their data, and we get to benefit from all of that. And so we will continue to watch what other countries do, what other countries find in terms of understanding herd immunity as they go forward, as we call it. And uh, and make the best decisions we can with the information that we have at hand, and understanding that, that if more information ahead. comes, decisions will change. The, I mentioned on my commentary earlier this morning about how there are COVID deniers, just like there's climate deniers and everything else, and they're saying are people really dying from COVID, or are they just people that had COVID and they died of something else? I don't want to get too deep into the into the weeds about how these things affect your body, but as I understand it, it it's a respiratory problem here. It, it, in a worst case scenario, it prevents you or at least inhibits you from breathing. 
which in itself obviously is, is could be fatal. But when that sort of thing starts to happen, as I'm told, uh, a number of other organs can shut down because of lack of oxygen. Strokes can happen. There's a whole lot of sidebar issues. Uh, that, yeah, you could say that individual died of a stroke, but the stroke was caused by the COVID. So the, it's, there's never one black and white thing here. Uh, when, when something like this is attacking the, the, the very system that's supposed to put oxygen through our systems. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the, the tasks that doctors have with people who are at the end of their life and who pass away is filling out their, their death certificate. And as part of that, they need to say, what was the chief cause of death? And what was were the other things that happened that were contributing causes, as we call them? And so doctors think about that very carefully. Pathologists um, help in that regard as well in terms of understanding what uh, what happens then. And coroners are are experts at this in terms of understanding um, those various contributors. And so, you know, absolutely, it, no death, every death is is the same thing in the end, right? Is that we stop breathing, our hearts stop beating, and and our brain stopped working, but trying to figure out exactly what led to what is is part of the challenge. Sometimes it's very clear cut, and sometimes a little less so. What we do know is is you can get a severe viral pneumonia from this virus. You can get um, bacterial uh, pneumonia, which which comes on uh, on top of that viral pneumonia. And we know that uh, people who have those chronic underlying conditions are more severely affected. And so you can get into a bit of a sort of well, they were already very sick, but uh, but that is the job of the physicians that are caring for them, and to sort out which of those things was the was the primary cause. And, and here we are getting information again. And we, for instance, we were taught initially, uh, kids are going to be okay. They're, it looks like they were immune from this. Well, they're not. We know that children, even young babies, are, have have been identified as positive. But now we're getting information that I just read about this morning here. But an interesting condition in children. Uh, what they call it COVID toes, and it's a, kind of a, a rash, it looks like, that develops for the people, the babies, the young children that are uh, COVID positive like this. And uh, I mean, who knew? I mean, it, it's it's a rather grotesque looking thing, but apparently it's, I guess it's not fatal or anything, but it's an indicator on how the virus can impact different people in different age groups. Absolutely. that That is part of this, right? We know that, that some people are more severely affected because of their age, because of their medical conditions. And so, as you said, all the things that, that we'll come to understand, we'll look back in a couple of years and say, oh, you know, of course, you know, why didn't we understand that sooner or, you know, see even new things that we didn't understand until then. And so it, it is a case of discovery with this virus for our scientists. It's quite an interesting process for the rest of us. It can be a little bit frustrating as we look and see the new stuff that comes along day by day. Well, and again, like I say, this is all new information and it's being studied and overstudied and everything else. Uh, quick question, we're just about out of time here, and we'll, I know that you're going to get into greater detail on this with the town hall later on tonight uh, that they'll be able to hear here on CHML. But as they move forward and we start opening, and I'll just, on a quick hypothetical, suppose they say, okay, you can go to uh, conservation areas and you can start using the parks as long as you do the, the, the physical distancing. How do we track whether or not that's making a, a positive or a negative impact? Are, are people going to be checked before they go on the trails? How do we how do we actually quantify that now? Well, you know, the primary thing that we're going to use to track whether or not we're being successful or not is the number of cases that we have. Okay. And so we'll be tracking those very closely to see, you know, are they going up or down? And that's where when we talk about wanting to make sure that those cases continue to decline, that we don't see new outbreaks, that we don't have vulnerable populations that are ending up in the ICU and in hospital or dying. So, you know, we'll be continuing to, to track all of those statistics as we go through. And the case and contact management that we do with cases 
um, is a is a big backbone to this new stage as well. And we'll need to continue to do that, make sure that cases are, are isolating and aren't the ones who are out and about in the parks and potentially spreading the virus. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, uh, who you can hear again at 7 o'clock tonight on the uh, the town hall, the virtual town hall. It'll be heard here on CHML. As always, Doctor, thank you so much for your perspective on this and for your clarity. It's always greatly appreciated. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's time for our, our weekly session now with uh, Andrew Goldberg. Uh, we're going to talk about employment law. This is a very, very difficult time for an awful lot of people these days because it's, well, not business as usual oftentimes. And we've heard about mass layoffs. We've heard about people being let go outright. We've heard about people that are uh, being asked, in some cases forced, uh, to have to change their their, their uh, policies towards compensation for the work that they do. So we're uh, pleased to welcome Andrew Goldberg, uh, employment lawyer and associate at Sanfiro Tumarkin LLP, uh, employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is the, uh, the webpage you want to go to. Uh, Andrew, welcome back. Good to have you on the show. How are you doing this week? Oh, I'm doing well, Bill. Bit of a cloudy day, but we're getting by. Loving the same four walls that you've been looking at for the last little while. Do you get out at all? I mean, it's it's difficult because you're not quite sure where you can go and, and how long you want to be out there, right? Yeah, I try to, you know, go for walks and, uh, you know, stay six feet apart from everyone around yeah. me. But uh, otherwise, a lot of staying inside and working these days. I get uh, a lot of emails after you and I have these conversations every Wednesday, so I'm going to invite people if they want to fire some questions off to you uh, during this segment. You can reach me on email, bkelly at 900chml.com, with your questions about employment law for Andrew. I've got one that I got uh, just the other day that I set it aside, because I read this and I was kind of intrigued by this, and I'd like to get your read on it. Uh, The the writer goes on to say, My daughter, who works for a mid-sized Ontario city in economic development, has been advised, along with her colleagues, they, they must go to a four-day work week. Now, at first, they had two options, either take the reduced salary or use a vacation day for the one day per week that they had to be off. Now they're being advised they don't have a choice anymore, and they must use up all of their holidays before moving to a reduced salary. And she goes on to write, aside from being unfair and short-sighted, I can't even imagine how much absenteeism due to illness will skyrocket in July and August and around Christmas time? The, the bottom line, though, is this legal? Well, the reality, Bill, as we've talked about multiple times on the show, is anytime an employer attempts to change the fundamental terms of someone's contract, uh, that could amount to a what's called a constructive dismissal, which could be treated like a termination. And nothing's more fundamental than a contract than to be paid what you've agreed to be paid. Um, so if that means that the writer's daughter um, is being compelled to take a four-day work week and take a 20% pay cut, that could be treated as a constructive dismissal, and that individual and her colleagues who are in the same boat uh, could very well be entitled to a severance package. Can they ask you, a part B to this too, and this is the part that intrigued me about the, the, this proposal, I guess it's not even a proposal because now they're being told they have to do this. Can you be forced to take your holidays when the company says, in other words, you're going to take these holidays one at a time? I know I know you wanted to wait till August to go up to your parents' cottage, but you're not going to do that this year. You're going to take a day off without pay, and that's how you're going to use up your holidays. I mean, can they force that happening? Well, an employer can't necessarily force you to take your vacation days in, in the manner that you're describing. I mean, employers do have some rights to dictate um, 
kind of general time frames in which one can or cannot take their vacation. So, you know, imagine you're an accountant and, you know, you're doing the year-end books. You know, an employer might request that, you know, you don't take the vacation during that time, maybe take the vacation after, um, you know, the, the books are closed and you've, sure. you've done what you need to do. But, you know, in this situation, an employer cannot force an individual and they can't say, listen, we're cutting your, uh, your uh, pay and your hours by one day's worth of hours and one day's worth of pay, and now you must take your vacation um, during that time. Uh, no, that's that's not something that's going to be acceptable. I mean, it, it's it's going to be up to the individuals to determine how they want to treat that. If if those people whose hours are being cut, they they aren't happy with it or they're not going to accept it, I think uh, you know that's something they want to speak to a lawyer about and see what kind of um, avenues of recourse is available to them. In a situation like this, and this is not included in the letter, if, if this person works in, in, in a, a city department, economic development, I think she says here, uh, I, I'm assuming that they're, they're, they're part of the administration. But if you're in a union situation and, and this happens, you really have to go through the union if you've got a, a problem with what they're trying to do, don't you? Yes. So in a unionized setting, um, so all unions will have their own lawyers. And once you're unionized, you know, you're your representation is limited to the union uh, legal representation. So unfortunately, in a situation where you're an employee, you're in a union, and you want to seek uh, legal counsel, you, you know, you're limited to going to the union's lawyer, you're limited to going through the, the grievance process and, and the labor arbitration process that's uh, available to you through your uh, company's collective agreement. And, and this does not say that, by the way, this email that, that I'm referring here, they don't mention anything about unions, so I'm assuming that that's, that's not the case. But your advice then, and again, we understand, as you've told us in the past, every case is different. Uh, your advice, though, is this, this, uh, the daughter of this, uh, the writer of the email here should actually seek legal advice about this. Uh, if, if it's something that she's concerned about, uh, absolutely. And, and again, another thing that we've discussed many times is, you know, there's going to be a whole boatload of people that notwithstanding... I might tell them, like, what what's happening to you could be treated as a termination. There are going to be quite a few people that say, you know what, great, that's fine and dandy, but I'd still rather get the 80% pay than, than no pay right now, yeah. even yeah. though this might be infringing on my legal rights. But even if that is the case, it is very important that you as the employee is writing to the company and explaining the terms and conditions in which you're going to accept the four-day work week or accept a 20% pay cut. Because if you don't do it properly, um, you open the door to giving the employer the right to keep that term in place indefinitely on an ongoing basis, right? So that's not something you want to happen at all. I, I mean, something that I've seen quite a bit is an employer will say, okay, we're reducing your pay by 20% or we're reducing your hours by 20%. And this will be in effect until the situation improves. And I, and I tell all the people that I speak to, I say, well, what does that mean the situation improves? Does that mean until, um, you know, companies aren't deemed non-essential anymore? Does that mean until we have a vaccine for the COVID virus? Does that mean until the economy has bounced back to 100% or the company's revenues have bounced back to 100%? That's very vague, and I would never recommend to someone to agree to anything like that. So you want to make sure that, number one, if you don't accept the pay cut or the cut in hours, you can uh, avail yourself of a legal recourse in the sense that you could 
treat it as a termination, pursue a severance. If, if you're okay with the 80%, uh, the, the one-day cut, then you just want to make sure that you're communicating the right things to the employer to make sure that you're preserving your rights in the future. Well, and as you talked about last week, I mean, the employer certainly does that. I mean, if they're going to offer, for instance, as they did a few of the grocery store chains, uh, a bonus pay for, for pandemic pay, they called it. They told you it's only going to be till this date, then it stops. Well, if you're on the receiving end of that, if you get to getting a reduction, it only makes sense then that you would go back to them and say, okay, when? When does this stop? And if the answer is, well, we don't know yet, well, you got a problem, I guess, don't you? Yeah, I agree. And something to keep in mind as well is, the government has now officially rolled out the wage subsidy. So I find it amazing where <clears throat> even if a company is struggling, if the government is now subsidizing their wages for up to 70%, it's capped at, at you know $847 a week, but a lot of people make around $50,000, $60,000 a year. So you know if the government is subsidizing wages up to 75%, I understand that a lot of employers have taken a hit, but have they taken such a hit that they can't cover that other 25%? I mean, maybe in some situations they genuinely cannot. But I imagine that a lot of employers are just simply taking advantage of the situation. We've seen that. Um, it's, you know, many times now there's the, the news report about the Hudson's Bay Company and what they've done to their employees. And we yeah, I want to get into that in just a second. A bit, yeah. but, uh, but, you know... I just find it unfathomable to some degree. If the government's going to pay 75% of the wages, you as the employer, if you can cover the other 25%, like you're just, you're getting off the hook 75% of your employees' wages. Just go cover the other 25%. Uh, that should be something that's feasible more often than not, right? So now that that's rolled out, there's small business loans available. You know, I feel like we're seeing way more situations of pay cuts, pay decreases, and we should in light of all the money that the government's putting into programs like this. And if the government is going to be putting money into programs like this, which will inevitably come back to taxpayers at some point, I mean, this has to be funded somehow, then employers, it should be incumbent on employers. If you can cover the difference, then cover the difference. There's really no excuse in many situations, unless I suppose it's, you know, the situation is so dire that you can't do it at all. But, you know, I'd be curious to know how often that really is if you know what i mean exactly uh very quickly just back to the email for a second and then i want to move on a couple of the other things yeah. uh because i'm getting the, the the sense from what you're saying that this individual probably should at least explore uh and get a legal opinion on this so because it looks like this is, is a, a little shady uh from their standpoint but if there are if they decide to do something about this as you say there's some options that a, an employment lawyer could explain to them if, if there are 10 people in the department and nine of them say, well, I think it stinks, but we'll take it, and the other one says no, does that influence uh, the, any rulings that, that might happen? I mean, did they say, well, yeah, well, everybody else did. What's the matter with you? Or does it matter? Is it all just all in a one-off? No, it, it, I would say it doesn't matter at all. I mean, just because someone wants to treat it differently than you might want to treat it, uh, that that has no bearing. I mean, your employment relationship is... Is a, you know, a, a relationship between you as an individual, the company as the employer. You know, everyone has their own terms of employment. Everyone um, has a different situation to some degree. And if some people have different risk tolerances than others, if some people, you know, don't care to go down a certain road and some people do, it's an individual decision. So I, I wouldn't worry about, uh, um, you know, if your colleague is accepting the pay reduction or the hourly reduction and you don't want to, 
I would I would really not be concerned about that if I was uh, the person that you're describing, that uh, the daughter of the individual who emailed in today. Okay, thank you for the email, by the way. And uh, while well, you've heard uh, Andrew's advice on that, I hope they follow up on that. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Hudson Bay situation. This is something you brought up last week in the program, and it was right near the end, so we didn't have a whole lot of time to, to delve into this. So maybe you could uh, just step back a little bit, Andrew, and explain to the listeners that maybe didn't hear that segment last week what the situation is with the uh, the HBC workers. Yeah, I mean, so that's a very uh, kind of a sad situation there. Uh, essentially what happened in this case was the Hudson's Bay Company essentially sent out notices to uh, quite a few of their employees, our understanding is more than 90 employees, um, that that these individuals, they'd uh, experience a pay reduction of 25%. And within the notice, HBC indicated that the reason for this pay reduction is that, you know, number one, it's temporary. Number two, that is the reason that we're putting this into effect is because it will allow... HBC to keep employees actively employed. Um, so people had to, you know, make the decision that we just talked about. Do, I guess, you know, do they want to see a lawyer and, and maybe treat their employment as being terminated? Or do they want to say, you know what, although we have legal recourse here, um, I'll bite the bullet and I'll take the pay reduction and, you know, well, let's see what happens on the other side. So bunch of individuals accepted the pay reduction and it, it came into effect my understanding is april 16th and the next day um or about two days later a lot of these individuals were fired and when they were fired they were presented with severance packages and these severance packages were based on their reduced salaries so that you know we'll uh you know, severance package is based on a length of time, so it's based on typically months. So, you know, you get a 12-month severance package, an 18-month severance package, whatever. Mm-hmm. So based on your length of service, your age, your position, so these employees would be getting these severance packages saying, you know, we'll give you nine months pay or 10 months pay, but just so you know, this pay is being based on your 75% earnings, not your 100% earnings. So seemingly, um, HBC put in this pay cut, which people agreed to, to keep their jobs. And then once they agreed, they were fired um, and then provided with discounted severance packages. So, you know, the dif- the difference between what they could be owed at 100% and 75% can be very significant. Sure. So, you know, we were shocked to see this. Um, and especially, you know, such a reputable Canadian company. And so that was very shocking. So... Uh, that's that was uh, that that was a new one um, for sure. The other one is uh, I don't know where that was going to end up. As it turns out, uh, Fudora, uh, who actually got a bad uh, well, they think it's a bad deal anyway from the Ontario Labor Relations Board. Uh, and what do they do? Just close up shop? Yeah, so they closed up shop and they're uh, they're out of Canada. And um, a big part of that is the, the Labor Relations Board has ruled that uh, the Fedora couriers have the legal right to unionize. And obviously when a workforce unionizes, uh, that becomes more expensive. So sure. I, I imagine with how competitive, now don't quote me on this, but I imagine with how competitive uh, kind of the food delivery market is, you know, there's Uber Eats, Just Eat, uh, Skip the Dishes, whatever. Uh, you know, the margins are probably quite tight. And after that ruling came out, essentially they're, they said, sayonara, we're out of here. What does that do to the employees? So, well, that's that's a good point. I mean, the, the way you even phrase that question brings a lot of uh, 
issues up, which is, you know, Fudora has always classified their, their drivers or couriers as being independent contractors, right? So this ruling definitely points to the fact that as opposed to being independent contractors, Fudora drivers and couriers might be considered employees. Um, and what's important there, you know, people might be asking, you know, who cares if I'm an independent contractor, I'm an employee, what's the difference? Well, the main difference is if you're an employee, you have far, far, far more rights than if you're an independent contractor. Sure. So things, things like overtime pay, um, vacation pay, holiday pay, minimum wage, and very importantly, severance. So an independent contractor would not be entitled to severance and an employee would. So, <clears throat> you know, forget about just two-door um, couriers, but there are many people out there you know, if you're listening and you have a contract that says that you're an independent contractor, um, and if you maybe are, are not on the company's payroll, but you're being paid through invoices and submitting HST and all that, uh, that does not necessarily mean at all that you're an independent contractor. Really, it's all about the relationship as a whole. So you have to look at the whole relationship. And essentially, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, you know, it's a duck. Like, if you if you feel like you're an employee, if you make most of your money from one source. So if you work 40 hours a week for an employer um, that's calling you an independent contractor and they have you know, a great deal of control over what you're doing and you can't you know, subcontract your work out to other people. So for example, these Fedora couriers, I don't believe that they could simply, if I was a Fedora driver, I don't think I could go to my buddy one day and be like, hey, I, I can't really work today. Do you want to cover my deliveries? I think you have to be uh, qualified as the Fedora driver. You have to pass their um, whatever, the vetting process there, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've been let go in the last, <clears throat> you know, four, six, eight weeks as a result of this COVID virus and your employer's taking the position, oh, no, 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 you're an independent contractor. We don't owe you any severance. If you feel that the relationship is more of that of an employee-employer relationship, you know, you certainly can pursue a severance package. And that's, I think, a lot of people um, aren't, aren't availing themselves of that opportunity. So it's very important for people to know. It does not matter that you're misclassified as an independent contractor. It's all about the relationship and what's going on between, you know, the individual and the employer. Uh, there's another story I want to touch on, but we're right out of time. And so we're going to have to save this one for next week. Uh, you're working at home. I'm working at home. A lot of people are working at home. Uh, and the German government is now set to introduce uh, what they call right to work from home legislation. I want to talk about the implications of that and whether or not it might work here, but let's let's set that aside for next week. Uh, we should mention all the things we've talked about here. Uh, before you go down that road, always a good idea to talk to an employment lawyer and get some legal advice about some of these things because it can get pretty uh, intricate and tricky when you're trying to go through some of the weeds here. Andrew, as always, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for the advice. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again next Wednesday. Oh, sounds good, Bill, and uh, you take care of yourself and have a great rest of the week. You too. Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer and associate at Sanfiro to Markin LLP. And of course, you can hear all those guys on uh, Sanfiro to Markin on uh, the employment show, uh, weekend mornings, weekend mornings, right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the political reactions and the political realities on both sides of the 49th parallel. Uh, the two governments, uh, the U.S. government and Canadian government, have handled this thing very, very differently. Uh, they both have their critics, certainly, but it's uh, rather fascinating to watch the daily proceedings 
of the leaders of these countries as they try to deal with this and try to impart information and try to gain the confidence of, uh, of their voters, of the, the, the people in those countries. Uh, one seems to be doing it pretty well, not perfectly, but pretty well. The other, eh, not so well. Joining us to talk about this, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Laura, been a while. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, how are you loving the quarantine? <laughs> well, you know what? I have my moments, Bill, and I've been posting about them. I've had, I think, three COVID meltdowns. <laughs> uh, it's, you know what? We all have different people that we're concerned about, different circumstances that we're trying to move through. Uh, I, I'm very lucky that uh, I've been busier now than I ever have professionally in my life, which is good for my family, but also, you know, a lot with the kids home and homeschooling and everything else. So, you know, we all just have to uh, give ourselves a pat on the back to get through every day that we get through and, and just try to keep doing the right stuff. Well, I mean, you've got two wonderful children. One is a, a master chef and the other is an artiste. Uh, so, I mean, it's never dull around the, the household, I would think. It is not dull, but also hard to work off those quarantine 15 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I've seen some of the stuff that Daryl's making. It's uh, good for you guys, anyway. Uh, anyway, let's get into this. Uh, you've also had some time to, to watch what's been happening here. And, and obviously the two names that come right up to mind here is jo Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau and how they've handled this thing in very, very different ways. Uh, the way I, I would categorize this is Trump has been, to say the least, confrontational uh, with the media, with other governors, with just about anybody who's involved in this. Uh, whereas on this side of the border, I get the sense that right from day one, the prime minister has tried to be inclusive and bring everybody to the table. And uh, we're getting very different results by these two different, uh, th these different uh, attitudes in the way that they're dealing with this. Well, crisis exposes leadership. It exposes skills. It, it really tests people to their limits, not just government, but all the corporate leaders and organizational leaders I work with all day long. And so what we're seeing here is Trump's skill set is very limited. It's very limited to what always worked for him, which was to deflect, to create false narratives, to say people are saying, to hype things, you know, very much con man kind of, we think about the snake oil salesman of old, right? That worked for him in New York. He always overhyped everything. He always, you know, made assertions that couldn't be backed up, pivoted, changed, always talked about what people were talking about. All of that stuff that he has always done, just sort of flooding the zone with nonsense, uh, and working behind the scenes to get what he wants, that isn't working. And his five o'clock briefings were getting huge numbers, but it was more because people were watching this this historic train wreck that is his lack of skills in the middle of the biggest crisis. Probably people are saying now to hit humanity because of how many of us are affected and, and all the different strata from the healthcare crisis to the financial, mental health, everything else. So what we're seeing is his lack of range as a leader being exposed. And that's why governors in the U.S. are becoming the superstars and people are turning into their briefings for the real information and maybe more watching uh, Trump just kind of in this meltdown. In Canada, what we've seen is that Trudeau, I think, was a little bit, hum uh, he was humbled a bit by the last election. I think Canadians wanted to send him a message of, you know what, you're not all that. And so we saw very early on between making Christian Freeland the deputy prime minister, giving her an active role, giving all of the experts active roles. He doesn't crash their press conferences. He doesn't drag them up beside him uh, when he does his press conferences and sort of show that, you know, he's the one in charge and they're all working for him. He does his thing, tries to communicate a consistent message to Canadians that we're all in it together, very unifying. And then he lets his experts and the premiers and everybody do their thing unabated. And I think that that strategy, that leader, you know, they, there was an article by Tom Friedman 
uh, I think last week, where he said, you know, there's really three pillars of leadership, humility, empathy, and honesty. And I think we've seen Trudeau very much try to have those three pillars in play. And if you look at Trump, I mean, do any of those apply to him? Not at all. And that's what we're seeing is the real difference in leadership skill. Well, you know, complete this sentence. Nobody knows more about blank than I do. I mean, and that's Donald Trump's modus operandi. Uh, and it is farcical, Laura, that he gets up there every day uh, and, and, and tries to pretend that he's the medical expert as well as the, the political, uh, you know, big cheese patty in this situation. Uh, and and I, that's why you're right. I believe people tune in at 5 o'clock to see what kind of a, 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 you know, a farce he's going to have. Where, and uh, while well, we do the Trudeau things here, on, of course, on CHML, Trudeau does the political stuff and, and leaves the medical stuff to the medical experts who come on after him. It's, and it makes a world of difference. I want medical evidence from doctors and healthcare professionals, not from politicians. And, and he, he seems to get that. And, and I'm hearing the same thing from Doug Ford and from, from the premiers as well. They, they seem to understand what has to happen here and, and don't step out of your comfort zone. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that, uh, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, Trudeau and his government policies have been a little bit like whack-a-mole you know we're trying as business yeah. leaders are trying to figure out what is the compensation where is it there you know there's gaps and holes and it's a little bit sporadic but uh the intention behind the policies and the speed of execution on them doesn't seem to be in question whereas in the united states everything that is even rolling out as policy people can't even trust the intention behind it is the small business program going to the right companies are people taking advantage are trump you know businesses uh, getting a, a leg up is that you know that there's so much uh, around even the intention behind their policies and then the rollout we saw the the payment to families not only get messed up in terms of the messaging uh, by saying, you know what, hey, you know, people can live off $1,200 for 10 weeks. Not only is their messaging off, but even the rollout had to be, I guess, slowed so that the check could have a note on it from Trump or something. Like, they're mixing so much politics with policy in the U.S., and there's such a distrust there that, you know, their response to this is going to be one of the tragedies of humanity. They've passed a million people sick. Uh, and their deaths are, are out of whack, even for their population, because of how they have they have mishandled this from the start. So Canada hasn't done everything perfectly, Bill. Uh, but by contrast, I think there's a reason why 72% of Canadians think that Trudeau is doing a good job leading. And in the U.S., Trump is bleeding support from seniors and even from states that were swing states that he picked up before. He's in real trouble getting reelected, not just because of the state of the economy and the pandemic, but the fact that it's come out that he was given multiple, multiple warnings to take it more seriously. And for because of his own desire not to deal with something he didn't want to deal with or he didn't want the economic impact of, uh, how many people unnecessarily have lost their jobs or their lives because of that lack of leadership. And I think history is going to judge him extremely harshly in his administration. We talked about some of the Trumpisms and, and the impact that they have on his base, and 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 for a certain extent, there I guess, Laurie, for a, a period of time anyway, uh, on others too that kind of fell into the fold because they were disenchanted with Hillary Clinton or for the Democrats or whatever the case might be. But it's so blatantly obvious because he's on TV every day now, and these these are not rallies. This isn't speaking to the American people. Uh, you know, this is a hoax. I mean, you know, he says, I never called it a hoax. He did. We, we saw the video. We saw it happen. We saw the video. Uh, you see them run it a hundred times a week to make sure uh, that this is just poof going to go away. There's five cases now. Soon there'll be one, and that's it. Now we see the numbers. 
the deniability that he's always been able to, to lean on in the past and, and to, to play the blame game, you can't blame a virus, and, and you can't deny away something that people are playing the minute after you do this. I mean, how many times have you seen Trump's denial juxtaposed with the very video of what he just sa- was alleged to have said, which he did say? Uh, and well, yes, I think a lot of people in America right now are just saying, you know, I've had enough of this. Well, yesterday, I think, was, if you could take it even to a crazier level, uh, and we've seen a lot of crazy coming out of his communications, but yesterday when he was challenged, when they hit the one million person mark, yeah. and uh, I think it was Robert Costa who said to him, you know, Mr. President, how do you square the fact that you said it would go down to one, and we're now at a million Americans with this diagnosis? Uh, and Trump said, well, uh, it will go back to one eventually. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, I mean, like, if that is the level of thinking and rationalization that actually plays in his mind, then that's why we're seeing other leaders just taking over. That's why we're seeing the CDC just speaking the truth. Uh, that's why we're seeing Dr. Fauci doing so much other media. And he is popular enough, and, and Trump admires his popularity enough, he's good TV, that he hasn't quite been ousted yet. Uh, but I think we're going to see an increasing level of experts saying, this is actually the challenge of my time and of my legacy. And, and how close do I need to be to somebody who is being mendac- using mendacity and lies? Uh, and and non and not logical, right? That that kind of response isn't even logical. So, to your point, Bill, I think that uh, his even some of his base, which everyone thought could never move, you lose enough people, you lose enough people that you love, you you lose your job long enough, you're going to start to look at not did Trump cause the virus? Of course not. But no. leaders are responsible for how they react to crisis, and we can I think the world can say very definitively, Trump fan or not. His ability to manage it has been abysmal. And the lying on top of that and the questionable intentions behind his policies has made it almost unbearable. I try not to, I have to have a really good mindset to even watch his briefings because it can truly make you, it can be deleterious to mental health. That the person most responsible for healing the world or for helping the world or guiding the world is, is not speaking truth and is living in a kind of a fantasy, uh, salesy, kind of space and that can be very very stressful for people so he's doing a lot of harm from the from the bleach thing you know to all of his other comments uh and just the way he's handling it i think it's causing people added stress quite frankly well and i'm glad you brought the the yesterday's uh, thing up of course there was the one in the rose garden with the the, the, the kind of love in where we brought a couple of corporate people up there and then he and pence basically misrepresented the facts once again when it came to things like testing and and, and all these statistics which he's trying to spin uh, but because he said he wasn't going to do a medical briefing, the medical people had their own meeting, as you just alluded to. And, and wa- Laura, as I watched that, and, and Fauci was up there with his folks from the CDC and others, they looked emancipated. They had this look on their face, oh, we, we can finally speak freely. The chains have been lifted. And they told a much different story than they told when they were standing on the podium beside Trump over the last three weeks. Absolutely. And you know what? In uh, So... Steve Smith, who I know is one of our favorites to watch, yeah. uh, he's a brilliant Republican uh, strategist in the U.S., and he said very clearly, if you look at crisis and communication from leadership, the only way it works is first you have to tell the absolute truth, the hard facts, the, 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 the bad stuff. 
then you have to then you ask for the sacrifice that's required in order to get past it and then you talk about certain victory and we've in the history when presidents tried to soft pedal things around war and other things uh, they had to pivot to a much more direct serious honest space because the only way you get the public to stay home or to do whatever they need to do to sacrifice for the greater good uh, and get to that assured victory is by explaining to them what is really going on and so when the we saw you know hopefully a liberation of the of the u.s scientists to be able to tell us because we simply cannot fight something if we don't know what it is you know in in public relations or in communications we use the expression a problem well described is half solved right so if they're not even describing the problem well and accurately and honestly the solution is so far further out and if trump wants to get the economy back and open the sooner he starts to have people learn the truth and start to do the sacrifices required the sooner that economy opens permanently so you know it's so counterintuitive what he's been doing and and his bag of tricks uh isn't working that's not to say that he's not going to do something else that will get him reelected in november i don't think anyone should ever count trump out i've never thought they should uh, he's clever and he seems to be unmoored by the same considerations and empathies that most of us have so there's no limit to what he might do uh to get reelected but for the sake of the american people and our border cuz the virus doesn't respect our border uh for the sake of everyone's lives we need the the governors the adults the scientists to be the ones communicating the status of this pandemic from the united states it's the biggest bully pulpit in the world and it has to be accurate stuff for all of us I've got about a minute or so left here. I've got to get your read on one other thing, or as we watch the players, and we've talked about the two principals, the prime minister and the president, but others have risen to the fore on both sides of the border, and I wanted to get a quick comment. One is as the Ontario Premier, and I, in you know, the interest of full disclosure, I have been critical of Doug Ford from time to time. Don't know if you've heard that, uh, but I'm, I'm very impressed with the way he's handled it. And on the other side, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who seems to have come out of this thing like, like shining because of his attitude and, and, the, and the work that he's put into this yeah so cuomo's a rock star because he's a straight shooter he's got that new york talk uh, he used to be unpopular because he was too abrasive but he's giving the honest goods and his press conferences are really the shadow presidency press conferences here with doug ford uh i i think that he has adopted a more somber tone i think this is touching close to his family and he understands the gravity and he's been good at putting scientists out there and stopping with partisan rhetoric and 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 you know silly jabs and all the rest of it i think he's been good i think calling out those protesters at queen's park who want to open up the economy so they can get a haircut he called them yahoos I thought that was good communication. But, you know, putting in a raise for our frontline health care workers for three months, uh, I can't remember the last time that MPPs voted in a raise and then took it away from themselves in three months. So I want to see his policies live up to his somber tone. Exactly. Well, yeah, lots more to come on this. As always, Laura, great to get your perspective. Stay healthy, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. You Laura too. Babcock, president of Power Group. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.